As we enter into the last days of Jesus' life for the next few months here. Today we're in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 44. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, He went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. This is the word of the Lord. We are all of us deeply and permanently affected by choices that we didn't make. Choices that other people made for us. Just one example. In the year 1914, a young couple named Armin and Amin Azadian were living in Istanbul, Turkey. And because of the genocide being being inflicted upon the Armenian people, and they were an Armenian couple, they faced a choice. They could flee and go to Paris, France, where some of their family had gone already, or they could flee and go to the United States, where others in their family had gone. Two generations later, because Amin and Armin went to Pittsburgh, I am a Steelers fan. (laughs) Amin and Armin were my great-grandparents, and they made a choice more than a hundred years ago, that affects me today. All of us, children, our parents are making choices all the time, making decisions for how we'll be educated, where we're going to live, how we're going to be raised. Our lives, all of us, express the consequences of choices that other people made for us. And this is true on a much grander scale regarding choices made in a garden long ago. The verses we just read are about the choices that Jesus made while praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. But we need to read and understand those choices in the bigger context of another garden and another set of choices. Adam and Eve faced temptation in the Garden of Eden. Temptation to follow God or to follow their own wisdom and their own desires. And their choice to follow their own desires had grave consequences for every human being that followed. Their choices they made as representatives for all of us. Well, the Bible describes Jesus as the second Adam, who was also tempted in a garden to abandon God's way. And yet he chose obedience. And he made that choice as a representative for all who would be in him. The first Adam disobeyed and brought condemnation for us. Jesus, the second Adam, perfectly represents us before God and takes our place and obeys. And we experience the consequence of those choices made for us. So let's look at what Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's consider carefully the choices He makes for us and see what effect those choices have on us today. 
The first thing we see is that He struggles for us. Jesus chooses to struggle for us. One of the main things that should strike us about this event in Jesus' life is how deeply He struggles. Now, because we know Jesus is God... We, many of us at least, picture him as forever serene and composed and unperturbed and nonplussed and any other big word I can think of to describe somebody who's just not affected by things, right? We imagine him rising above human emotions. After all, he sleeps on the boat during the storm. He doesn't get angry and fight back when he's insulted. He forgives his executioners, turning the other cheek. And there is truth in all of those images. Jesus did indeed uh, not be ruled. He was not ruled by his passions. He didn't let his emotions direct him. Instead, he responded rightly and righteously to every situation. But we also have to look at this picture of Jesus in the garden. And we have to see how he feels and struggles in that hour. Verses 37 and 38 says he took with him Peter and, and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. It's okay to feel troubled. It's okay to feel sorrow. It's okay to struggle with these things. But look what he does. Does he calmly lean forward? Fold his hands, close his eyes, pray a simple, calm prayer. No. Verse 39 says he fell on his face when he prayed. Luke tells us that Jesus was dripping giant drops of sweat as he's struggling in this hour. Is this a man who is calm and unaffected by what is about to happen to him? No. Because he is human like us, Jesus feels the same things we feel. But keep looking. Let's look at the words of his prayer to see more about his struggle for us. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus knows what awaits him. He's been predicting his crucifixion. He's been anticipating the rejection, the betrayal, the beatings, the shame. It's so certain that he's been saying, look, this is what's written in Scripture. This is going to happen. This is the way it has to happen. And does he therefore just sit back and pray, well, God, whatever you want is okay with me. Nothing I can do about it, God. Your will be done. No. And, And this is part of the mystery of prayer. God invites us and Jesus models for us prayer as a struggle. Prayer that looks at God's will and what God is doing and struggles with it and expresses honesty and difficulty. God, if there's any other way, If this can play out in any other way, that's what I want, not what you seem to have for me right now. God, I see where this is going and I I will follow you, but but if if anything else could happen, if there's some other path through this, God, that's what I want. Now think of the significance of that. Jesus struggles. Why? Why did he struggle though? I would suggest that he struggles for us. He struggles for our sake. He knows that we, too, struggle to do what's right. In verse 41, he even warns that the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We want to do, sometimes, hopefully more often than not, we want to do what's right. But there is a war within us. There is a weakness. There is a struggle. And Jesus, if He is to be the Savior that we need, 
He has to understand that struggle. He has to have been in that place and felt that fear and struggled with it. It reminded me of uh, the movie, and I don't know if, to what extent this part of the movie reflects what actually happened in history, but the, the movie Apollo 13, if you're familiar historically what happens as the, uh, the moon mission that goes out and it has some, some problems that make it not only impossible to land, for them to land on the moon, they're not even sure if they're going to be able to get back home. And mission control and everybody on, on earth, they're, they're trying to find a solution to the problem. And, uh, you know, the triumph of engineering as they're finding all the parts that are available and trying to do workarounds to get fresh air in there. But one thing they did is there was one astronaut, Ken Mattingly, who had originally been scheduled to go on Apollo 13. But because he had been exposed to German measles, he was pulled off the mission. They put someone else in his place. But he was very familiar with the Apollo 13 module and with what they were going to be dealing with. He'd been in space before. And so what, what he did is he got inside a, a mock-up module that the astronauts were in. In the very same situ situation they were in. And every possibility that, that they were going to try, he did it. He flipped the buttons, he turned the levers, and he did it in the exact space and, and shape that they'd made it out to be. Because he said, I have to be where they are. I have to feel it just like they feel it and experience it just like they're going to experience it. This, this can't be done outside on the books, uh, just studying it. This has to be lived out. I have to experience it just like they do so that I know that it's going to work. And that just reminds me of what Jesus did. He didn't stand far off and say, yeah, I get what you're going through. No, he, he did more than that. He did more than Ken Mattingly did. He didn't make a replica human. He didn't simulate it. He took on human flesh. He became one of us, as the author of Hebrews describes in Hebrews 2. He says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be made human in every way so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then later on in chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but instead we have one who, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you see what that's saying? Because Jesus suffered, He can understand. You have someone in your corner. You have someone on your side who understands the struggles you undergo. Who, who understands what it's like to have a body that doesn't always work the way you want it to. Or desires that pull you the wrong way. Or thoughts that can overwhelm. He understands betrayal. He understands abuse. He understands frustration. He understands because he too, he too has struggled. He struggled so that you can be confident in bringing your struggles to Him. But He doesn't just struggle for us because that's not all we need. It's one thing to have someone who understands what you're going through and who can relate to your situation, but two people lost at seeing a lifeboat have that, don't they? You get what I'm going through? Yeah, I do. You know, doesn't help us, but at least you understand, you know, Yes, Jesus has taken on flesh and understands the situation we're in, but there's more to it than that. 
He doesn't just struggle for us. He suffers for us. Now, it might not jump out to you how we see that in these verses. In order to understand it, we have to look very deeply at the word Jesus uses when He talks about what's coming. He talks about the cup. In verse 39, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Verse 42, My Father, if this, meaning the cup, cannot pass unless I drink it, Your will be done. The cup is familiar. It's a familiar image in the Old and New Testament. The cup is the wrath and judgment of God poured out on sin. And we're going to look at Jeremiah to see that. And I need a drink before I do Jeremiah because I want to do it justice. Um, Of many verses we could have looked at, I want to look at Jeremiah 25. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand and drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, you must drink. For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name. And shall you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished. For I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. When Scripture speaks of the cup, it's speaking of the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the punishment of God for sin. And Jesus knows that the death he's about to die is not just any other death. It's a death with a special meaning, a unique purpose. Jesus is going to, in himself, experience the cup. The wrath of God is going to be poured on him. And dying on the cross, Jesus will endure the wrath of God. The Bible calls his death a propitiation. That word means an act that removes the anger of a deity. Jesus, His death was a propitiation. It took away the wrath of God because God poured out His wrath, His anger, His judgment on Jesus. That image of the cup is God's judgment on sin. But God also promised in Scripture, in the Old Testament even, that He would one day take that cup away from His people. In Isaiah 51, Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine, Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of His people, Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. That's not because God has changed His mind. God didn't say, let me punish you for a little bit. No, I'm going to take it back. No, I don't want to punish you anymore. No. He doesn't suddenly decide to stop punishing sin. No, he, he still is and always is just. He is always a God who punishes sin. Uh, and I, I warn people in first service, I'm going to warn you too. I'm reading through the Chronicles of Narnia with my daughter right now. And so you're going to hear a lot of Chronicles of Narnia's illustrations in the coming weeks, I'm sure. But there's one that, that uh, relates to this, uh, the story of um, Edmund, who was a traitor. He had betrayed his, his family, his, his siblings. He betrayed all of Narnia, the whole land, including Aslan, who represents Christ. And uh, the rule, the law, the ancient law at the founding of Narnia, when it was first created, one of the ancient laws that formed the whole universe said that the blood of every traitor belonged to the white witch. So when Edmund had betrayed his family and betrayed Aslan and all of Narnia, and yet he repented. Yet he came back to Aslan for safety and for rescue. The witch came to pursue. 
And she argued her case and she said, Aslan, you know the law. You know that if I do not get blood from the traitor, then all of the laws and all of the rules that make up our universe will break and everything will become undone and will be no more. The universe will come undone. See, it wasn't enough that Aslan was stronger than the witch. It wasn't enough that Edmund repented and changed. No, justice still had to be done. If our sin is not punished by God's wrath, then God ceases to be who He is. He ceases to be holy and just. And He instead becomes an arbitrary God who is inconsistent, who sometimes cares about sin and sometimes lets it slide. And everything comes undone. In the case of Edmund in Narnia, they had to find another way that blood could be demanded, but Edmund would survive. And to do that, Aslan took his place. This is why Jesus had to drink the cup. It's the only way for God to still be holy and just, to still punish sin and yet not punish His children. Not make them drink the cup. And so in Isaiah 53, after promising to take away the bowl of His wrath, the cup, Isaiah speaks God's words about the servant who would suffer. He was pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by His wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. The only way for His people to be saved is if Jesus drinks the cup. If He dies in their place. So Jesus, in the garden, chooses to accept the suffering. He chooses the cup. If His children are to be saved, He must suffer for them. He dies the death we cannot die. So Christian, it is the death of Jesus and only, only the death of Jesus that makes us right with God. So don't hold yourself or anyone else to any other standard. Don't impose on yourself or on anyone else an expectation of anything else that you believe is necessary to make them right with God. It is Jesus drinking the cup and only that that makes us right with God. It's not He drinks the cup and you vote Republican. Or He drinks the cup and you dress right, especially on Sunday morning. He drinks the cup and you worship using the right songs and the right hand motions or lack thereof makes you right with God. He drinks the cup and you have regular daily quiet times with God. Now, there might be value in some of those things, but they are not what makes you right with God. Only, only Jesus taking the cup of wrath away from your hands and choosing Himself to drink it. Only that and nothing more makes you right with God. He suffers for us and that is enough. But there's one more significant thing that Jesus does in the garden, one more choice He makes. He struggles for us. He suffers for us. He does one more thing. We see that He submits for us. We pay a lot of attention, and rightly so, 
to how Jesus suffered and died for us. I've just made a whole point about it, so I don't want you to think I take it lightly. But it, And I'm choosing my words carefully here, and I want you to reserve judgment until I've had a chance to explain myself. It's not enough that Jesus dies for our sin. It's not enough that Jesus dies for our sins. Because God does not only require a sacrifice. God also demands a righteous, perfect life. He says in Leviticus 19, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Oh, but pastor, that's Old Testament. Well, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And it's not a matter of indifference because God warns in Deuteronomy 27, words that are quoted in Galatians 3, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. If you don't obey, you are under a curse. And in Hebrews 12, Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I know I just threw a lot of verses at you in sequence, and they seem to be some of the scarier, less comfortable parts of Scripture. Because I want you to understand that Scripture is unified and adamant on this point, that forgiveness is not enough. Because God demands perfection. I've told you before about my Calculus three professor in college who when much of the class was complaining because they had scored 60 or below on their tests and he wasn't curving the grades. Why wouldn't he curve the grades if, if everybody was failing it? And he said, ladies and gentlemen, when I'm driving across a bridge that you have designed or flying in an airplane that you have engineered, it will not matter to me that you were the least wrong. You have to be all the way right. Most people cut his class. In the garden, Jesus struggles for us. He suffers for us, but He also submits for us because God requires perfect obedience. He's not going to just forgive the wrongs that we've done. In order to be in, eternally in the presence of a perfect God, we need to bring perfect righteousness. Not forgiven errors, but perfect righteousness. And so Jesus perfectly obeys the Father's will. In verse 39, he prays, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. As one commentator on this passage has noted, in the Garden of Eden, the first Adam said to God when faced with a choice, not your will, but mine be done. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, the second Adam said, not my will, but yours be done. The first Adam chose disobedience and chose his own way. And all we who came from him, which is every human being that ever lived, lived with the consequence of that choice. Rebellion and separation from God. Jesus makes another choice so that all who are in him are obedient. They're counted as obedient. Romans chapter 5 explains it this way. Therefore, as one trespass, Adam's sin, led to condemnation for all men. And this is where we say, hey, that's not fair. Why should I be punished? Because Adam sinned. Well, the very same principle is the basis of your eternal life. One act of righteousness leads to justification and life 
for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Or in the words of 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin. And we, Yes, Jesus took my sin on him. He died for my sin. Yes, amen. So that in him, in Jesus, we might become not just forgiven, not just excused, not just pardoned. We might become the righteousness of God. The perfect righteousness God demands, he gives us in Jesus. I've used this illustration before. I'll use it again. It helps me understand this. If you can imagine yourself back in your school days having to take one test, one examination upon which your eternity depended and you had to score perfectly on this test and you get the test and you look down at it and you have that feeling that every student knows, am I in the right class? I'm not sure I even read that book. I I don't know. And you just start filling in answers that you you know they're wrong. You know there's no chance. And then you take your answers forward to the judge to be graded. And many of us think that the gospel means he looks at it, he sees all the wrong answers, and crumbles it up and throws it away and says, ah, it doesn't matter, come on in anyway. And that is not the gospel, brothers and sisters. That's not the gospel. What happens instead is you walk forward with your zero out of a hundred test. And at the same time, Jesus walks forward, having taken the same test, having answered everything perfectly, even with good penmanship. I mean, it's annoyingly perfect. And he looks over at yours, and before handing them in, he just reaches over and writes his name at the top of yours. And then he writes your name at the top of his, and you turn him in. So that all the punishment and failure and rejection you had earned, he takes it and puts his name on it. But at the same time, and here's where the gospel is, all the reward and perfection and correction that he had earned, your name goes on there. That's the gospel. The perfect life that God requires, he gives to you in Jesus Christ. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Is this just impractical, theological, nice-sounding, but irrelevant stuff that we talk about? Is this just games we play with words? Does this actually affect my life at all? I would suggest it does. It affects your life deeply, deeply. Because whether you realize it or not, each and every one of you lives your life in the pursuit of being righteous. Now, you're not going to use that word to describe what you're doing, but it's what you're doing. You want to be acceptable. You want to be worthy. You want to be enough. And you may look to different places to find that, but that's what you're doing. You may be looking at at your body image and trying to find your worthiness in that. You may be looking at your career goals and think that's what makes you worthy. You might be looking at how you pour everything into a hobby or sports or your family or music, or something like that. And that's where you're looking for your approval. You're trying to win the highest score on that video game so you can brag about it. You're trying to put others down so that you look good. You surround yourself with expensive things and popular people. You try to convince yourself and others that you are worthy, that you are acceptable. You are seeking to be righteous. You are seeking 
to be justified or as Rocky says it, I just want to show I'm not a bum. You know, that's what you're trying to do in a hundred different ways. And now you may say, oh, but I'm a Christian and I'm looking for my worth from God. Well, the danger is still there. Because, and many of you know my story, and this is what I come out of. I believe that God forgave my sins in, G- in Jesus when I was seven years old. All the sins I had committed for the first seven years of my life were forgiven. But everything from that point on was up to me to be righteous. And when you're looking to yourself as responsible for your own righteousness, your own worthiness, you can't rest. You can't rejoice. You can't ever be secure that you've done enough. And you'll think you're better than other people who aren't doing as well as you. And you'll think you're not as good as people who are doing a better job than you. And you end up approaching God with fear and hesitation as a judge and as a critic and not as a father. So does it matter if we see that Jesus submits for us that He lives the perfect life we couldn't live? Absolutely it matters. It changes everything about you. It changes forever the core question that drives you. Instead of always wondering and asking, am I enough? Am I good enough? Am I kind enough? Am I moral enough? Am I enough? The answer to that question is going to change from day to day, but it's always going to end up being no. You're not enough. And that's the core question that is changed when Jesus submits for you. The fact that Christ obeys the Father in your place and gives you the reward of His obedience now means that your core question is, is Christ enough? Is Christ good enough? Is He righteous enough? Is He faithful enough? The, question, the answer to the question, am I good enough? That's always going to be no. But the answer to the question, is Christ enough? Will always be yes. And that is the question that defines you now. That is what God the Father sees when He looks on you now and in eternity. Not the faithfulness and obedience that you can muster together. Not your efforts at being good. No, He doesn't see that. That's on the wrong answer page that Christ took. Even our righteous acts are defiled. No, He sees the perfect obedience of Christ in the garden saying, not my will, but yours. Now, if you, were, if you had your Bible open and were looking at Matthew 26 while I'm reading this and preaching, you might think, he's skipped over some important verses here. There, there's some big stuff that we didn't talk about. And I, you know, I'm wrapping it up here, so I'm obviously not getting to it. You know, aren't we supposed to watch and pray so that we don't fall into temptation? What about all those commands to watch? Which literally just means stay awake by the way. Just means stay awake. It's like five times. He's like, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake, guys. You know, I don't want to say all that's not important. It is important. And there are lessons to be learned from that. But let's, let's, let me just ask you this. What happens after Jesus tells the disciples to stay awake and watch and pray that they don't fall into temptation? What happens? They fall asleep anyway. Okay? So this passage is not teaching us the importance of staying awake and praying. No, it's teaching us what happens when we fail to stay awake and to pray. 
When the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak and we succumb to the weakness of the flesh, what happens when the disciples fall asleep? Jesus stays awake and prays and struggles and suffers and submits. So as good and as right as it is for us to be vigilant and faithful, to watch and to pray and to avoid temptation and to work against our weak flesh, we should definitely be doing that. But that's not what matters in the end. What matters and what the gospel is about is what happens when the disciples are asleep. What happens when we fail to be faithful? Jesus is still faithful. He's making the right choices for you. So sisters and brothers, your hope, your success and your victory and your righteousness. These things do not depend on what you do, but on what Christ has done for you. While you slept, He struggled. While you slept, He suffered. While you slept, He submitted perfectly to the Father for you. As we're going to sing in just a moment. You could never keep your hold through life's fearful path. You couldn't do it. For your love is often cold, but Christ, Christ will hold you fast. That is your hope this morning. That is what gives you the strength. That is what gives you direction. That is what gives you the power to watch, to pray, to fight against the flesh, to do all those other good things. What gives you the ability to do that is that Christ has done everything for you. He will hold you fast. Let us rejoice in that today as we pray and as we sing. Heavenly Father, You know our weakness. You know that we would go into the garden and fall asleep. You know that when the enemy comes, we would flee. You know that we would fail You at every turn. And we praise You that we instead have Jesus who made the right choice at every turn. Who on our behalf, for our sake, did all of this, did it perfectly, and lets us experience freely and by grace the fruits of His struggle, the benefits of His suffering, the reward of His submission. Because of that, we are Your children. And because we have not earned it, we cannot lose it. You who have drawn us to Yourself will keep us close to You because You are faithful. We praise You in the name of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing?